This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode, I have Rachel Allen with me once again, and we thought we would go a little bit deeper on or a follow-up on our last podcast episode when we talked about spiritual deconstruction. So there were several things we skimmed the surface on or lightly touched on, and so we thought it would be good just to go a layer deeper talking about deconstruction. Yeah. I mean, so last time we like barely touched on this idea of you know, therapy is a deconstruction process. And the reality is we, as people are always deconstructing and reconstructing things that's part of growth. I kind of think of it, my, my child is really into Legos right now, but right, she'll build something and then like take it apart and build something else. And that's the whole point of mm-hmm. the toy, right? And so we watch kids developmentally do this in their play and their activities. And we don't really grow out of that if we are growing healthy, functional adults. And the word deconstruction has become this kind of pop culture nightmare, I think for some people, because it's being used so aggressively uh, in certain culture and certain pockets, and then without a lot of uh, understanding in others, right? Like Mm -hmm. what the deconstruction process is and what it looks like. And what we do as therapists is we question when you come into our office, something's not working and we're trying to help you figure out what it is and how to make that work for you. And I think that that in and of itself is a deconstruction process. And so when we start looking at spirituality and sexuality and how those two things work in therapy or even how it works in growth, right? Like we, should question things like that's part of the human experience, but we often feel like these two things are things that we cannot question. Mm -hmm. And that usually lands us in some pretty heavy places. Right. So again, we're kind of touching on two things like therapy and sexuality and the deconstruction process. And I, I know for, you know, many clients that I've worked with through a deconstruction on the front end of deconstruction, it can be scary. Yeah. Because the truth is we don't know where this is going to take us and we don't know where we're going to land with this. And even though you and I have both gone through our own spiritual deconstruction process, that doesn't mean we know where somebody else is going to land Mm -hmm. at the end of their deconstruction process or the ins and outs, the details of what we're going to encounter along that way. And so let's talk for a minute just about, you know, I mean, some of the, I think the, fear on the front end of deconstruction may be, what, what if I lose, lose my marriage? What if the friends that I have known stop talking to me? What if my family stops talking to me, right? Like what if my deconstruction process is too much for the people who are currently in my life? Yeah. I mean, those are big questions that come up around the beginning of deconstruction. And I mean, I kind of address those 
as honestly as possible in therapy as I can or with people in my life as I can, like, yeah, those are possibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you don't know. The reality is I don't know where you're going to land. You don't know where you're going to land. And what happens if you actually go through this process and you like yourself better and you feel more stable and you feel more functional and it's worth it. And, you know, the truth is like, I see more people keep their relationships, their primary relationships than losing them in this process, as long as there's honesty Mm -hmm. in the process. And so like that struggle of like what honesty and privacy are not the same things. I recognize that there are times and places to talk to our partners and kind of working out how to do that in appropriate ways versus just a bombing them constantly. But that honesty and transparency and vulnerability in a relationship creates a different space. And I can't guarantee, right? Like that's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that your partner is going to stay. But I do think that if we can be more true to ourself and true to where we are in the process, our partners tend to at least try to show up Mm -hmm. if they're in a space where they can. Yeah. I would add the one I also talk about, like having that respect. Partners are going to be more able to respect you during your deconstruction process. If you are able to respect that they are not maybe going through a deconstruction process. Or I also find that for most people who deconstruct, it does impact their partner somewhat, Mm -hmm. maybe not the same way it's impacting them, but be mindful that your partner is being impacted just simply by the fact that you're deconstructing. I mean, this is assuming that the partner's not deconstructing. Yeah. When sometimes, you know, it's a year later and the partner starts deconstructing, but I think they are impacted. Partners are impacted by deconstruction. They're impacted by the work they're doing in therapy. And so how do we share this in respectful ways? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that there are multiple ways to do that. The biggest thing is, you know, checking, checking yourself and why we're sharing it, right? Mm -hmm. If we're sharing it because we need the acceptance or we need, um, we need our partner to agree with us or those are not good spaces, right? If we're doing it in a way to manipulate our partner into agreeing or being on our side or that that's not a good space to kind of go into this with, I tend to do a lot of prep work of like, okay, how do you, how do you and your partner currently talk about faith? How Mm -hmm. do you and your partner currently talk about things that are hard or the questions that you have? Is that allowed? If questioning faith at all or questioning like something that you hear in a church service or in a seminary exposition or something like that, like if you don't have the ability to be like, "Mm, how do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? Or how did that land with you? We may have to do some prep work around just communication in the relationship of saying, hey, I have some big things that I need to share with you and they're going to be really scary. And we can do that in a supported environment with a therapist or both of our therapists or whatever that is, or, or we can do it, you know, alone if that feels safe. But if the relationship can't hold that, right, we want to do that as therapeutically as possible. Right. And 
I mean, I tried I statements, vulnerability. I think that very carefully, we can be angry in a deconstruction process and we should be, but when we are talking to our partner who we're not sure how they're going to take it or where it's going to land, they can't feel like the anger is coming at them mm -hmm. or that they're made to be in a one down position or that yes. we're judging them for maintaining. I like to use the word struggle. Like I'm struggling with this. Mm -hmm. I'm wrestling with this. I'm unsure because that's true. And I think that in general, we're not good at putting that part forward. We want to present like we have the answers mm -hmm. or this is the path that I'm going on and I'm moving forward. That's not really how spiritual deconstruction works. And so I like to kind of use those softer words of like, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm scared. Right. Because that's true. Mm -hmm. And when we show up with our partner in a way that says, I'm scared, I'm vulnerable. I, I want to be in a space where I can trust you through this process. It lands better. <laughs> it right. just, or like in general, it just lands better. I can't guarantee how that's going to hit a partner, right? It can hit a partner in any number of ways, but again, we're not being defensive in our own vulnerability, which I think is the most important part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think too, I mean, I think anger is a part of deconstruction Absolutely. and because in many ways, deconstruction is also a grieving process. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and so there's some anger involved in deconstruction. I usually tell them like anger never really works when we're at the peak of our anger. And that's when we choose to communicate. Yes. Like that just doesn't work in most situations. <laughs> right. Right. But if we can get to a place where maybe the anger isn't so prevalent in us and we're saying to our partner, like, Hey, I'm in a angry place right now with my deconstruction. Don't want to take it out on you. I don't want to take it out on our home environment, but I just, I need you to know I'm in an angry place. Yeah. I remember there was a point in my deconstruction process where I was, I just felt raw, like everything hurt. And this was a place where I was in a different place than my partner who had already kind of gone through his raw spot. And he was, he was reconstructing at the time that I was like, mm -hmm. and now I'm raw and I'm angry and I'm hurting. And I like, everything is up for me. And I remember just being like, I don't even know what to do with this anger. Like I'm scared to talk to you about it because every time I bring it up, it hurts you. And I don't know where to put this. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know what to do with this. I've never had this feeling before. And I've always had some trajectory mm -hmm. to push anger out, but I'm just raw. And in that moment, right? Like I remember him being like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. I did not put that together. And it makes sense that for you, this would be a different kind of raw because you're a female mm -hmm. and and I, I was specifically dealing with like female narratives that my husband, who is super supportive, had never actually experienced. And that honestly, just knowing that he was like, yeah, I, I wouldn't have even thought about that. I wouldn't have even, but like totally makes sense. Just that being seen was enough for me to kind of like, okay, I don't have to be so raw. I don't have to be so on edge. I still was for months, but it didn't feel like in our relationship. Mm-hmm. 
I was expecting him to respond in a different way. Yeah. I know in the faith that I came from, there's been some research done on people who exit the faith and do a deconstruction process. And the, let's say the top 10 reasons why they end up leaving or, you know, what was important in their deconstruction, the top 10 topics, um, or things that they were wrestling with that made them exit. And the list was different for females than it was for males. Not surprising to me. Right. right? And in the top, I would say usually it was in the top three, if not the top was the patriarchal messaging that I received as a female. And for many males that didn't even hit the list. Like it just was not something that they were conscious of, not that they maybe couldn't be supportive of or open to seeing through that lens, but it just was not part of what was hitting them when they were deconstructing. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is one of those places where everyone who deconstructs is going to deconstruct a little differently because we all have different questions and we all had different parents of origin and religions of origin, right? Like Mm -hmm. every one of us got a little bit of a different message, but there are those overarching themes that seem to hit hard. And some of those are the, like the certainty issues, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where my faith of origin presents as they know, Mm -hmm. but how and why? And certainty issues are really, really high. And I think for women, that idea of like, you're certain about how I am supposed to be, but you've never lived in my body is part of that patriarchal deconstruction that happens because so much of the female experience has been dismissed in most major religions. Mm -hmm. And for women trying to find that space, like that's gutting. Right. And, you know, if you have a male partner who like is kind of open to that experience, like that can be very healing. And if you don't, that can be very hard, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're coming up against an entire societal narrative. Because there are males who deconstruct, but are not open to the patriarchal messages. And in fact, want to carry on the privileges of that outside of deconstruction or after deconstruction. And, you know, to me, that's not going to work if they're in heterosexual relationships. Right. And I think women do this too, right? Like there is some safety in knowing what the role is Mm -hmm. and knowing what is expected of you. It's kind of like, kind of reminds me of, this is a bad example, but I'm, I'm going to use it. It kind of reminds me of OCD a little bit where like, if I do all of these things, then bad things won't happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that, like if I have a ritual in which I control how many locks I, times I lock or how many times I check, like it becomes this ritual of safety and, but it's an arbitrary ritual of safety. Mm -hmm. And we're not even questioning, like, what are we trying to keep ourselves safe from? But for a lot of women, that's comfortable and they don't want to question that. And when you start the deconstruction, and I do think this is where spirituality and sexuality in deconstruction, like really cross paths is this idea of who am I Mm -hmm. and what does it mean to live in my body? And what does it mean to express myself sexually? Because most religions have 
rules around that. And those rules often don't fit individuals, right? They don't take on individual nuance. They're just rules that may or may not have had a purpose at some point, but culture has changed and the rules haven't, right? And I mean, I, I suspect religion has long been scared of sexuality, which is where the rules come from. That's just my opinion that, you know, if we can <laughs> control this, then that maybe I think control is a common reaction to fear. Oh, for sure. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be some like, you know, uh, guidelines, especially with like teens and sexuality, like I'm not advocating for, you know, just free open love. Right. But we're, we're not trying to recreate the sixties. Right. <laughs> and on the other hand, I don't want to create recreate the Victorian era, right? right. Where it was so micromanaged. Right. And so I read a book that I just thought was fascinating. It's called the immortal key and it has nothing to do with this subject, but it has <laughs> everything to do with the subject. So I'm going to put it out there. But he's talking about like one of the things that he talks about in the immortal key that just like solidified for me the amount of misinformation that we have around sex and religion and spirituality is he's talking about most of the things that we believe about Greece comes from 1% of the entirety of antiquity. And that 1% is what the Romans cherry picked. Like they chose to keep these things prevalent and then they burned everything else. And one of the things he's talking about is, you know, like we often think of Greece as a patriarchal structure. The highest level you could get in Greek society was as like a representative of a God and women held all of that power. Mm. Right women were the ones doing all of the rituals and all of this, all of those kinds of things. And he's like, so we, we lost something in translation there. And one of the things that I think we've constantly battled in religion is this idea of being integrated, being an integrated self. And we really like to disintegrate people in mainstream Judeo-Christian religions, right? There's a spiritual self, there's a physical self, and then... And they usually are at odds with each other. Yes, right? Like we, there's a lot of, uh, kind of across the board, there's a lot of this idea of like the carnal self and mm -hmm. like giving into the flesh and, you know, like all of Paul's writings were kind of in that space. And a lot of Augustine's, which is the majority of where Judeo, well, not Ju Jewish, but um, Christian faiths, get most of their theology is from this like Augustine who wrote massive amounts of material and he was a sex addict. He was misogynistic. He was very degrading towards women. He wrote about women as if they were like the spawn of Satan. Right. And so like we have this very like twisted idea of what partnership was supposed to look like of what, power was supposed to look like in relationship. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I think that that kind of breaks in deconstruction in some capacity, because that's one of the things that has to get put on the table or 
doesn't have to. I know people who have not put it on the table. It should mm-hmm. get put on the table, right? Because all of our beliefs around sex and sexuality and gender are tied up in what we are allowed to have spiritually. Mm-hmm. And those two things are intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, you know, one of the terms that's used in my faith, people who deconstruct from that uh, faith talk about the shelf breaking. Like there may have been going through life and we're kind of like, mm, I don't really understand that or I don't really get it. I'll just put it on the shelf. And eventually the shelf breaks. I think it is valid. And I've known people who do this where, you know, the sh- there's too much on the shelf for the shelf to maintain, you know, holding everything up and functioning. And so the shelf breaks, but I've known people who in essence will say, I'm going to re-put the shelf up. I really like the shelf. And there's some favorite things that I like on the shelf. And so I'm going to put those things on the shelf, back on the shelf. And then I will deconstruct around these other things. Mm -hmm. And hopefully because there's less weight on the shelf, those things can maintain and be on the shelf. Now, in my personal experience with a lot of those people, it prolongs their deconstruction. I'm not saying that they can't do it that way. If that's that's the way that they need to do it, they need to do it that way. But, you know, five years in, they're like, holy cow, did you know, like that is off the shelf now, right? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, I mean, I've not heard the shelf analogy. That's a really good one. But I do, I do think, right, there is this, because I was a long deconstructioner. Like mm-hmm. I, I was started too. deconstructing and my deconstruction process took a long time. And on some level, I think I have been deconstructing since I constructed <laughs> because there was always a question. There was always yes. a like, wait a minute, but what about this? And so, but I think right for me, there was this belief and I see this a lot in, a, in that long deconstruction process of the belief of I can, like, if I do enough work on me and enough people also do the work on them, then the system itself will change. And so I do think that there are those things that we just kind of like, okay, I don't have the energy for that right now. And so we just put it on the shelf because it's not hitting us in the same way. But as we deconstruct, it starts to hit us, right? Mm-hmm. It's we, mm-hmm. because it, because all of this is, none of it's isolated. So if you pull on one, one thread, it's like a web, it's like a spider web, right? Like eventually you're going to feel it in other areas and it will become the thing that eats at you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading a book, this was, it was several years ago now, uh, by Rachel Hild Evan called, um, searching for Sunday mm-hmm. and her shelf breaking moment or she doesn't describe it as that, but her self-making moment in the book is, uh, happens when a live execution happened in Operation Iraqi Freedom, I think, where the Taliban was executing a woman for, like, standing up to her abusive husband, I think is what it was. And Rachel had Evans watched it, like, because it, it was live. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of those things. And, and she said, you know, the the thing that like hit me is that this is a woman, a Muslim woman who is being executed at a soccer game 
at halftime. And she said, like, how is that fair? Right? Like I was raised as a Christian and in Rachel Held Evans faith, there's a belief that if you don't accept Christ, then you go to hell. Right. And so she's like, but like, what we know is typically people who accept Christ are raised in a culture that is highly saturated in Christianity. This woman, her name was Armenia, didn't have a choice. Like, did she ever have a choice? So her entire life has been torture and hell and, you know, dehumanization. And then we're going, and then God's going to send her there. God's going to send her to hell for eternity because her life was that way. And that was Rachel's breaking point. And she, I mean, she does a great job walking through her deconstruction process and searching for Sunday. And Rachel held Evans deconstructed back into her faith, which I think is another mm-hmm. thing that we kind of talk about. Like, you deconstruct, but you can reconstruct into anything. You can reconstruct back into your faith of origin in a different way. You can reconstruct into a different faith. You can reconstruct into no faith. But I, I think that that's the other part of this process is recognizing that you don't know where you're going to end up. Right. And so before you decide, like, this is never going to be resolved and I'm asking these big questions, the reality is, like, a lot of us ask big questions and we find a way to move forward in a different, on a different path, right? The point is not to deconstruct and stay there. Right. And I do think that is what people think when they start deconstruction is that I'm just going to pull this all apart and there's yeah. really nothing left. Yeah. That it's a, it's a deconstruction is a loss process. Yeah. And there is nothing to be gained. And I think that's one of the myths on the front end of deconstruction is that, you know, I, I am only going to lose things instead of like, I mean, I think it's a pretty big thing to gain yourself. Mm -hmm. Like I gained myself. I know who I am. I know what I stand for. I know how to express my beliefs Mm -hmm. in action or in words. Like that's a pretty big gain in my book, but we don't know who we're going to meet along the way who become really good support people and we develop lifelong friendships with, we just don't know, but there, you know, anytime I feel like there is loss, there is also gain. Mm -hmm. And I think too, deconstructing back into religion, whether it's the religion you deconstructed or a different one. I, I mean, I think religions are better served by having deconstructed and reconstructed people in the pews. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, Richard Rohr talks about this a little bit in Falling Upward, I think is the one that he talks about this, but the idea that like, there's always been mystics. There's always been people who have questioned. Mm-hmm. There have always been, I mean, like even in, you know, even in the new Testament, John the Baptist was that right. Like we, we kind of hold John, the, well, a lot of Christian faiths hold John the Baptist up as like this guy who was foretold and like he was doing good things. Right. And, and he was martyred for the things that he was doing is, you know, the, the story, but the reality is he was kind of kooky. Like if you like, <laughs> yeah, just in like a basic, like if you were living during that time period and you came across John the Baptist, you'd be like, Oh, I don't, <laughs> you're asking a lot of questions that maybe we shouldn't be asking. He was a mystic, mm-hmm. right? And 
the, you know, there's major minor prophets in the Old Testament. They are mystics. And not just in Christian, I mean, this is kind of a Christian paradigm because we, um, because that's kind of the faith of origins that we have known and mm-hmm. kind of helped mm-hmm. people. And have clients from yeah. those religions. And yeah. And so like we've helped people walk through that process. But I mean, even if you go back to, you know, Greek mythology, Norse mythology, which even then, really, when we're talking about why do we call it mythology, um, it's a very interesting thing. But when we go back to like pagan religions or look at pagan religions or look at like even in modern Hinduism and modern Muslim, Hebrew, Jewish kind of sex, there are mystics, Mm -hmm. right? There are people that question. There are people that are like, well, maybe. Mm -hmm. There's always people who just don't fit in the mainstream. Right. And that has always been the balance in faith Mm -hmm. is the, the structure and the questioning because you can't have faith without doubt. You, you can't. Right. And unfortunately, I think in American culture, we really, 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 really like certainty and we really, really, really like to know that we're right Mm -hmm. as Americans. And that creates a dichotomy in our faith in which we completely lose doubt. We completely lose questioning. We completely lose leaning into the unknown. And unfortunately that kills some of the magic of it, Mm -hmm. right? That, that kills some of the wonder of faith and spirituality and the complexity of what it means to believe. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of James Fowler and he has, I think there's the, I can't, I never can remember if it's four or five stages of faith. And he was a psychologist, I believe, maybe had his theology degree as well. And he talks about, you know, the first stage of faith is kind of like, we would look at this as like little babies, right? And we're at church and, you know, we say, where's Jesus? And they point to the picture and we are like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, and that's so amazing. And look at this, the faith of this infant, which really, I mean, the fact that we're clapping and so excited, they're going to do it again. Right. Right. And then stage two is knowing the stories, mm-hmm. you know, being able to retell Bible stories, being able to retell the stories within the faith. Right. Mm-hmm. And he talks about stage three is where most people are going to get to and stay mm-hmm. now. I mean, I think he was around in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So I don't know if that is changing because I think we're seeing a lot more deconstruction happening than we were there or back then. So he says, you know, a lot of people get into where, you know, there is some net positive in their life. They're acting on these stories or they're putting them into practice, these principles into practice and feeling like they're getting some reward out of Mm -hmm. it. And, and they're happy there. Right. And then he says, you know, stage four is that deconstruction process. Something cracks. Yes. Like we talked about in our last episode, that's kind of the faith crisis. Yeah. Something happens that we're just like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I can't see this the same anymore. You know, and he talks about in stage four, there is a deconstruction process that then requires a reconstruction. 
But he also says for some people, they go into stage four and find it so unsettling mm -hmm. or so rattling to them that they go back to stage three in something else. Yes. So my kids, you know, will joke about one of my cousins. It's one of my youngest cousins. I can't, my mom had six siblings. So she's actually closer to my kid's age than she is to my age. Cause I'm one of the older grandkids. She's the very youngest, maybe not the very youngest, but in the mm -hmm. bottom five. Right. And you know, they used to say like, we couldn't, we used to, we couldn't talk to her about anything without her preaching religion to us. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, I didn't really enjoy the conversation because there wasn't a conversation. Right. Right. And then she went through a deconstruction process, but they're like, but it's the same thing now, just about veganism. Yeah. yeah. And you cannot talk to her without her preaching this new religion, you know, that my kids call it like, it's this new religion for her. Yeah. And they're just like in this place of like, still can't talk to her, still can't have discussions or conversations because she's still in this mode of preaching. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I think happens. James Fowler talked about, like we reconstruct actually as a stage three into something new, yeah, new religion, new belief system, instead of actually finishing that fourth stage and, you know, reconstructing in terms of not belonging to a mindset that tells us, you know, here's the structure. We create the structure, he would say, is actually finishing stage four. Right. And I mean, sometimes we will move into stage four, right? We'll have this faith crisis. And I think this is part of the denial of the deconstruction process, but we will double down mm -hmm. back yes. into stage three, yeah. right? And then we become like, it becomes a like proof mm -hmm. that we weren't doing stage three well enough. And so mm -hmm. we will double down into stage three, which is kind of heartbreak. Like it's heartbreaking to see that because it's painful, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a painful kind of, Typically it doesn't work, right? It works short term. Right. And then they're back at that place of like, maybe this isn't just me. Right. Well, and I, I will also say like I, people who double down in that regard, like they start to lose relationships, even within their faith, because it, it becomes this wall mm -hmm. that, that people can't access the person anymore. And I think that that, right. Like that's a, an important part of this process. Uh, when you were talking about the stages, though, it reminded me of the first quote that I used in my presentation from The Way of Kings, which is oh, yeah, yeah. The, the nerd quote. I can't help it, guys. It's always <laughs> a thing. Like, this encompasses so much of what we're talking about. And I think it's just beautiful. So it's, when we are young, we want simple answers. There is no greater indication of youth, perhaps, than the desire for everything to be as it should be as it has ever been. The older we grow, the more we question. We begin to question why. And yet, we still want the answers to be simple. We assume that the people around us, adults, leaders, will have those answers. Whatever they give often satisfies us. Indeed, it seems to me that aging, wisdom, and wandering are synonymous. The older we grow, the more likely we are to reject the simple answers unless someone gets in our way and demands they be accepted regardless. And one, I named my child after that character. So like, <laughs> it's a thing. 
but I do think, right, like that is, that is what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. That like stepping into wisdom, that, that stepping into like what it means to own who we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I resonated when you read it in your presentation, just as a kid growing up in a chaotic family, I wanted answers. I wanted to believe somebody had the answers. Yes. It wasn't my parents, but I wanted to believe somebody did. And I've said this before, that's where my religion became my third parent mm-hmm. because they seemed to have those answers. And from my child perspective, it seemed that they were right. They had better answers than I did, right? And yet I think as I grew, and I, I do think it is, it's a hard place to be in where you're, not necessarily wrapped up in answers Mm -hmm. or the lack of certainty, Mm -hmm. you know, around things. It's a hard place. I mean, I have, you know, kids like when that stage, when they graduate high school and they're looking at their future and, you know, maybe they start on their associate's degree, getting all the generals knocked out, but they don't know what they want to be. And they would come to me and say, mom, you know, what should I get a degree in or what should I be? And I, I was like, I don't know. How would I know that? Like, I think it's an important question to ask. Mm -hmm. I think whether, you know, one of my kids didn't go get her associates until she kind of had more of a plan about what she wanted to do, but staying with that, you know, one of my daughters was like, I mean, I was talking to my friends about it, but they're all just getting married and having babies. And I don't want to do that right now in my (laughs) life. Right. And so I'm just left with, I don't know. And I was like, yeah, I I think I don't know is actually pretty powerful Mm -hmm. because there's so much we don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, like you don't know for you right now. I don't know for you. Like, I don't believe I can know for you. Yeah. And I think that that is the bane of my deconstruction process is how many people thought that they knew for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And without really even understanding who I was or what my goals were or what, and I don't know that this was, I mean, this is something that came up in my spiritual deconstruction process, but this wasn't necessarily a spiritual belief. This was a social belief. But when I graduated college, my grandmother, who was a very interesting human was like, I'm so glad that you got this out of your way. Like, I'm so proud of you now you can focus on like important things like starting a family and i was like wait i just i'm the first person to graduate with a bachelor's degree in our family and like you can't a nice pat on the head yeah it was like and she was she was super super and this is one of those things right she was super proud of me Mm -hmm. but it didn't fit her paradigm of what women were supposed to be or what i should desire which again is really funny because her mother was absolutely about education above mm-hmm. everything else, right? She had to quit school in the sixth grade to start working at a textile mill to help pay for things for the family. And so she didn't get to finish education, but she was an avid reader and she would go to the library all the time. Mm-hmm. And she wanted knowledge. She's a very smart woman. And, but like for her, right, she was the, There are a lot of things that, you know, there are a lot worse things than living by yourself. There are a lot worse, like education above everything. 
you take care of yourself and then the rest will kind of come. Mm -hmm. And then her daughter was like, I'm so glad you got that out of the way. Now we can like focus on important women things. And, but I do think that that's something that like I had to wrestle with because family is kind of big for me in terms of like where I came from and the messages, right? The generational messages that have been passed down. And one of the things that I have always kind of wrestled with is that like, but where am I in that, right? Mm -hmm. There's all of these like supposed to be's, but where am I? And I think that deconstruction allows people to figure that out. And, Mm -hmm. And in our office, I think people start to sexually deconstruct often before they're spiritually deconstructing. I do have clients that come in and are spiritually deconstructing and that's why they come in. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes like the narratives that we've been given about sex and ourselves and what we should and should not do or like, or fantasize about or enjoy, like those are not lining up. And because they're not lining up, sometimes they're out of control, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're running rampant because they won't fit into this box. And so we start deconstructing that process too. And I think that that's so layered that mm-hmm. the, the beauty of deconstruction to me way outweighs the fear and the anxiety of deconstruction because it's, it's just asking questions and I'm a question asker, right? Like I know a mm-hmm. lot of people that are like, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to ask the questions, Yeah, which is fine. Yeah. I'm at a place now where I find more beauty in the question. Yeah. And if somebody tries to answer it for me, I'm like, no, no, no. Just let me wonder. Right. Let me not know. Right. Like, let me just ask the question. Which in some ways kind of brings us full circle, right? To that wonderment of a child, right? Mm -hmm. Like my child is younger and we're in the stage where she asks a question. And if we give her a real answer, she just makes up something that's just (laughs) like, nope, I think that cheetahs can fly. And we'll go on a tangent about like why it would be important for cheetahs to fly and how she thinks that would be a cool thing. And if she gets a chance, she's going to make a flying cheetah, right? Like, mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. just, I wonder what could be, right? She's yes. in that, I wonder what could be, not why is it this way? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where like change happens for humanity. Like, I love that space, that what could be, not what has always been, not We've always done it this way, but like, what could be, right? What would happen if we leaned into humans are complex and beautiful and fragile and resilient in all of the ways? And what could be, what can mm-hmm. we do with that? Right. right. Like that's it. That's just a neat world to think, yes. think about. Yeah. I remember when my kids were young, well, I just had the three at the time and they were discussing what they were going to be when they grew up. And, you know, the oldest one said what she was going to be. The second one said what she was going to be. The third one was like, I'm going to be a train. (laughs) And they were like, you want to drive a train? And she's like, no, I'm going to be the train. (laughs) And they were like, you can't be a train. Like you're a human. (laughs) And so you have to be a human. And she was like, no, mom says I can be anything I want to be. Right, mom, mom, can I be a train? And you know, I'm like, do I just let her be a train right now? Cause like, what does it matter? But I was like, well, I mean, humans do have to stay humans. And she was like, oh, well then I'm going to be strawberry shortcake. 
and I was like, done. Okay, there we go. There we go. It's as far as we get. My so we just had my kids' preschool graduation. And I think this is this is what I think is beautiful about what we're talking about, this idea of wonderment and this idea of reconstructing into being able to question and just mm-hmm. asking the question. So they did a thing. It was um, Dr. Seuss themes mm-hmm. or the places you will go. Mm-hmm. And they had little hot air balloons with the question of like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And everybody else had like, you know, a farmer, a policeman, a, you know, nurse, whatever. My child was a scientist. Wait, no, actually a queen. <laughs> And they put the whole quote on there. And I was like, of course, because that, that is right. right. But just that idea of like, wait, why do I have to be one thing? Can't I be a scientist queen? Can't I like, what, what are the, what are the rules here? If I can be anything, we're going to take several things. We're going to have several options. Yes. And I think that that's what reconstructing does. Mm -hmm. It gives us options. Right. It, it allows us to spread our wings like one of the things that we talk about in terms of healthy sexuality is safe sane and consensual right mm-hmm. and if you're working within that framework there are a lot of options right but if you're working in in a more restrictive framework of like these are the rules mm-hmm. and you you can't step out of those rules or you will be in some kind of moral crisis that's really reductive right we lose a lot of options in that Mm-hmm. And we do that spiritually too, right? Like if, if we can look at it as an expansive process, then we get to question yes. and whatever we believe, whatever we reconstruct into should be able to hold that because it too is cons- expansive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if we have reduced the idea down to a finite group of rules. One that does that that has never made sense to me. Like right. even like before deconstructing, the idea that something infinite and expansive and like created the universe big could be reduced to a finite set of rules. Like we don't even understand all of the rules of Earth right. and how like animals live underwater for a certain amount of time or like after you get to a certain point, like how do their bodies not collapse in on themselves because of the pressure, right? Like there's so much stuff that we don't even mm-hmm. know about our own bodies, right? Why do we think that like everything can be reduced to these things that we know? Right. It's, it's, just, it's again, it's that a love of certainty. Right. And again, that's a comfort thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a, you know, there are no monsters mm-hmm. when you're putting the kid to sleep and reality, like there kind of are, but not monsters like our kids think about, mm-hmm. but we all have shadows. We all have things that we have to wrestle with. We all have things that we're, we can't control or we're scared of. And it's just much easier to answer the, like, there's nothing to be scared of. Go to sleep. Or if you do A, B, C, and D, right. then you'll be okay. Then you'll be okay. And other people are the ones who have to deal with those scary things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, working with pornography, sex addiction, that type of stuff, you know, we know that a lot of religious people tend to have higher rates of pornography or sex addiction. Not that you're 
average secular person doesn't like right. it exists. It's not something that religion created right. in terms of like the diagnosis. Right. But I think because some people are in that like reductive framework sexuality wise and even for themselves like right. this is what is acceptable to be right mm -hmm. this is the actions that show that like all of that is quite reductive porn becomes a place where they can explore that shadow part of the self right and i think in therapy understanding that shadow part how that shows up in pornography yeah. addiction how that shows up in sex addiction you know, what are the wounds behind the sexual fantasies? What are the non-sexual fantasies that feed into our sexual fantasies? Yes. All of that becomes expansive. Mm -hmm. And then I think asks the question, who are you and where do you stand in this? Right. I mean, it also reminds me of Gail Dines when we heard her speak at the ITAP symposium several years ago, where she said like, porn is doing that too, right? Like mm -hmm. porn is feeding you an arousal template. Mm -hmm. It's not letting it grow organically and letting you discover, which right. again is this, like, it is also certainty, mm -hmm. right? It's certainty about like, well, this is normal mm -hmm. because it's out there and it's prevalent when like, if we're not talking about sex, if we're not leaning into self-discovery, if we're not leaning into that like question and that expansiveness and healthy sexuality and we have these dueling ideas between like sexuality is carnal and we need it. Mm -hmm. And there are these rules and you, you're not allowed to discover, you're not allowed to question and spirituality kind of like supersedes that. And in some ways punishes you for what you do discover about yourself sexually. Of course, you're going to move into a, a certain space, right? With sex too, mm -hmm. right? Like, well, this is normal, which, then feeds the myth, like just this sexist, crappy sexuality myths that we have around yes. like yeah. sex drives. And, you know, this is just men are just more visual mm -hmm. or like, you know, the purity culture narratives and the rape culture narratives. So we, we, that's where we start to get into like, well, this is what sexuality is. And these are the dichotomies that we live in. And that's not, that's not good sex either. Right. Right. <laughs> And, but I do think, right, when we start looking at those fantasies, when we start looking, like those fantasies ask questions about wounds. Yes. And I think that that's true in spiritual fantasies too, mm -hmm. which we don't talk about a lot, but a lot of people have spiritual fantasies. Mm -hmm. A lot of people move into that space of living in a utopia or even like dystopian societies and like the whole zombie apocalypse mm -hmm. survival mm -hmm. thing. Like that is a spiritual fantasy because it is about surviving mm -hmm. the impossible yeah, and how well, we would do that. And I know, I mean, I've talked to all of my colleagues at work about whether they're following the Chad and Lori Vallow Daybell case, murder case <laughs> up in Idaho. And to my chagrin, none of them are. And I'm having to like summarize this, like, what is it like a four year process? for my colleagues to make a point. <laughs> Sorry, um, I'm one of those colleagues. But I think that case in a horribly disturbing way is also a spiritual fantasy. Yes. In that both for Chad and Lori, they got to be special. Yes. And they could deem who was not special, which 
you know, not surprisingly was anybody who was kind of questioning them or in their way. Right. But the fantasy of self that is wrapped up and I've read, you know, several books that go into their background, all of this, like <laughs> I find it very fascinating from a therapist perspective, the spiritual fantasies that drove them were clearly very dangerous. And there's a lot of bodies connected to that. Right. And I mean, uh, you and I have both read the book. Well, you've read the book Coltish. Yes. Uh -huh. yes. I love that book. Mm -hmm. I think it, like, it is fascinating to me. Um, but she talks, she talks about that, right? She talks about spiritual fantasies and the idea. She has a podcast. Yes. Sounds like a cult. That's the name of the podcast. Sounds like a cult. Oh. They were talking, I was listening to it on Saturday doing some yard work and they were talking about the cult of Survivor, the movie show, the, movie, oh, the yeah. TV show, Survivor, the cult yeah. of Survivor. Anyway, fascinating. Um, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Right. Like, so we all have one, I think that we all have this, and I think that this is human. This is the core of humanity that we have this paradox inside of us of you are special and you are not more special than another person. Mm -hmm. And when those get out of balance, mm -hmm. we, we can do atrocious things in the name of being special, right? Like that's mm -hmm. how every Holocaust has ever started. Right. And, but we can also do atrocious things in the, I'm not as special as, which is a lot of the mass shootings, mm -hmm. right? Like that's coming from a place of, I will never be enough. Mm -hmm. And so, right. Like we, when those get out of balance, they're hitting a wound. Those are right, core, right. those are core attachment things. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but spirituality can feed that spirituality can mm -hmm. feed those attachment wounds, depending on how extreme and how like insular we get with those. And I think that that's where looking at, I mean, she talks about toxic relationships being a cult of one, mm -hmm. right? And so looking at the way in which we will default to those settings is really important. And I think really, again, part of this deconstruction process, like sometimes what we have to do in the process of deconstructing period, sexually, spiritually, right? Like you can pick a category mm -hmm. is asking the, why was this important to me then? And why doesn't it fit with me now? Mm -hmm. And should it fit? Right? Like why doesn't it should it? And because when we start to ask those questions, then we do get into this space of like, whoa, like what is this spiritual? Like, what is this? I need to be a demigod, right? Like mm -hmm. why do I fantasize about being Hercules? Like, there's, there's a lot of parts of that that I just don't want. And right. there's a lot of reasons that would be bad for me, mm -hmm. but it is that being seen, being recognized, being right. Which again is a, is a mm -hmm. core sexual wound right. too. Right. And right. We're going to just like all of the layers. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and you can start to see a pattern of how those wounds show up for you and how to heal those wounds. And hopefully we start to find some balance in that. Right. In the reconstruction process. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes once we've gone through a deconstruction process and a reconstruction process, it's not that the deconstruction ends because there's yes. so much to deconstruct and to look at and to, you know, critically think about, ask ourselves questions about, but I think once you've done it, it's less threatening. Mm -hmm. Like it just becomes a process of deconstructing, reconstructing going forward. Yeah. And I mean, like 
for me, for my personal life, like I hope to be less like Legos and more like Play-Doh by the end mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want to be able to be malleable and mm-hmm. to shift in the places that I need to in order to be more who I am. Like I, I'm hoping, right. Cause I'm deconstruction is a lifelong process, but I'm mm-hmm. hoping that as I continue to question, as I continue to grow, it becomes more of a natural ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. And let's say like we build something, we take it down. We build mm-hmm. something, we take it down. Right. Because in reality, we are organic beings. Like we are part of this world. We're part of, we have seasons. We have physical seasons in our mm-hmm. body. We mm-hmm. have, you know, like for women, we have cycles, right? right? Men have cycles too. They're different. Not but, as obvious. Yeah. Not as obvious, but like we live in a process of death and renewal. Mm-hmm. That is, that is part, that is like the, on a cellular level, on a cellular on, level, uh, right? all the other yeah. levels in our bodies. Yes. In our world. Right. And so I hope that this becomes more of an organic thing for me is this letting go and accepting, letting go and accepting mm-hmm. versus, okay, I'm tearing all this down again. All right. Build it back up. Cause that's exhausting. And I really hope that I don't have to do that continuously mm-hmm. and that it does kind of move into a space of a cyclical seasonal pattern or rhythm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe, but yeah. Right. You're always deconstructing while you're reconstructing. I think yes. that there's, you know, I grew up on a farm and so we would plant, like we're always, we were always cycling plants, right? You'd have your early mm-hmm. spring plants and then you would have your late spring plants, summer plants. Right. And then we would move into like pumpkins and heavy mm-hmm. squashes mm-hmm. and things like that. But you're like constantly cycling through that process. And while one thing is dying and another thing is like building and that thing that is dying is actually fertilizing the thing that is building. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, I mean, maybe we can do that as humans. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting. I've also had, I mean, one thing that I have, this is my theory. I haven't seen anybody else (laughs) theorize this, but as we in our country currently are becoming more and more politically divisive, I think for some people who have deconstructed, they landed instead of going through stage four, right? They landed in their political beliefs and that's their new religion, Oh yeah. which politics is, should never be your religion. I'm just going to say that like, yeah. And I, mean, I think politics seeing, should really just be like a, a, a structural guideline. Like it shouldn't yes. be holding these big moral. There's issues. nothing true about politics. Like we're not going <laughs> to find truth and wholeness in politics. Right. I mean, to me, I have a different definition of politics, like how we decide to live together as people, but that's rarely reflected in, you know, <laughs> our current political state, or maybe ever has it been reflected, but I, I, yeah, I was about to say that feels very like utopian. Yes, it, <laughs> it, it is. Um, but I've also had clients who are coming into therapy politically deconstructing. Yes. And then it leads them into a spiritual deconstruction. Yes. And I had, you know, somebody personally, like who, one of my uncles and, you know, he was always like in my household, we didn't have like a dad who was a spiritual leader or anything spiritual kind of that way. I mean, he kind of half-hearted tried to fake it, but that wasn't very believable. But this uncle, like, I don't know that there was anything that he hadn't read or he was just so well-versed and my mom looked up to him and we were 
at a barbecue at his house in 2021. Now, I'm one of six kids. Three of us have deconstructed. Three, I would say, have not. And we don't really talk about it as siblings. Like, I know that everybody knows that me and my family are out. I don't know if they all know about the other two. And I don't know how they know about me because they've never had conversations with me about it. <laughs> but we were at this barbecue, all of us as siblings, and my uncle just asked, which is a normal question, like, what are you doing at church right now? What are you doing like calling wise? Right. And I kind of had this moment of freeze. My husband was like, I was watching you across the table. So was my sister who was out like, Ooh, but how is she going to navigate this? Right. And I, I had a moment where I was like, do I pretend? Do I lie? Like this wasn't really how I planned opening up the topic. But I couldn't lie, right? I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend. Like, I don't know where that ends. I'm not going to start that process. So I just, you know, was like, oh, yeah, we're no longer affiliated with the church and kind of went through a deconstruction process, you know, these years. I mean, I was surprised that he handled it fairly well and was just like, oh, I mean, I guess we haven't talked that much, so I didn't know that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, also, it's not something I post on social media about or really put out there much but yeah so last year when my daughter was getting married he came you know to the reception and was like i need to talk to you which i'm like you know what would you need to talk to me about like so you know i called him after the wedding and he just said like i'm deconstructing and i don't know i mean he's probably in his late 60s he's like i don't i don't know anybody that i can talk to like people my age are not deconstructing and the stakes seem so much higher and I can't make it work. Mm -hmm. I just can't make it work. And so, you know, we've had several phone calls and I'll call and check on him, how you doing? And, you know, it, but for him, he politically deconstructed, I would say in 2018, which we also had a discussion about at the time. And then he sees that, like he sees that now, my political deconstruction just set me up for a spiritual deconstruction. Yeah. And, you know, I think at least the messages that I got, which I, I got different generational, right? I was like post Reagan. Well, Reagan was president when I was born, but like the messages that I got growing up were kind of in this post Reagan era when politics really changed. And mm -hmm. I don't, I didn't know that because I didn't grow up in, like, I didn't grow up pre Reagan but I didn't realize how much our entire political environment changed with Reagan. Mm -hmm. But there was this sense of like, Americans are right. Yes. And we don't fail mm -hmm. that. I think that the, we don't fail was kind of the overarching belief system that, or worldview mm -hmm. that I was raised in. And I don't know that they meant to, right? Like if I, if I was to ask the people in my community, like, did you mean to do this? Oh, I, I think there were people who did. Oh, I mean, I think there were definitely people who were like, absolutely. This was my brainchild. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes. But in my community, I don't know. Right. right? Like, I don't know that that is the, that was the message that they were trying to osmosis. Mm -hmm. But I think because that is the, the narrative. It doesn't reconcile with humanity. 
right? Mm -hmm. we, uh, well, it's a very toxic nationalistic message. Right. And it's also like when you break it down at the very core, right? We don't fail in religion. We don't fail in business. We don't fail families. Yeah. We don't fail in our families. We don't right? like when you just think about what people one consider failure, because there are a lot of things that people consider failure. And I'm like, that's not a, that's not a failure. Mm -hmm, that's like mm -hmm. good for you for figuring out what, like right. what you need in your boundaries and moving mm -hmm. into that space. But like, you know, financial failure, divorce, like working, we work in this nation a ridiculous number of hours and hate it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like how many people hate their jobs and just like work astronomical hours right. in jobs that they hate. But again, if the country doesn't fail, if these systems are right. true, right. Then it must be you. Right. Which is that like, again, that certainty, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm the broken one, mm -hmm. not wait, wait a minute. Let me deconstruct how this system is actually working for me. Mm -hmm. And I do think that what we're seeing spiritually in terms of Gen Zers leaving faith structures mm -hmm. is part of the breaking down of that process. Right. Because Gen Z is looking at America and going, whoa, yes, no, we fail. Mm -hmm. And you're living in denial, but we have to live with the consequences of that denial. Mm -hmm. And I think that faith has become a part of that for them. I think that sexuality has become a part of that for them. I think, I, I mean, I think that our laws and the way that we function in our legal system is becoming that for them, but they're deconstructing earlier Mm -hmm. than any mm -hmm. other generation in America. Yes. And I know I look back with my kids. I mean, my husband and I have, have had these conversations, like, of course they all deconstructed. Like the way we intentionally parented them, we didn't know right. that they, we were parenting them in a way that they were going to deconstruct, but they did. Right. And they, they deconstructed young, right? Mm -hmm. They were, able to ask questions. We valued their questions. We taught them to critically think about things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they did, right? <laughs> I, I think it's, I just had this conversation last night. I think it's like, it, yeah, it's parenting philosophy 101 for Rachel. But like, I was talking with a friend about uh, books because she was talking about, well, like, you know, Twilight was just in my school library and like the messages and stuff that come from that book series were kind of toxic in terms of like how I viewed relationships and sexuality and things like that. And I said, yes. And she was like, I just think that like those books should be censored in school libraries. And I was like, nope. <laughs> like, that was my like, nope, we do not censor the written right. word. And, and I think that this is a hard line, right? Uh -huh. But like for me, I would rather be an informed parent mm -hmm. and have those conversations with my child about what's toxic and what's not mm -hmm. and why this is not a relationship, right? Like I can rant about Twilight mm -hmm. forever, but. But also having kids when Twilight was coming out, my two right. oldest started reading. Mm -hmm. They couldn't make it through the second book, which I was like, oh, thank goodness. Right. But I was a parent like what my kids were reading, I was reading. Right. And having discussions about them. Like, right. what do you think about this? What do you think about this character? What do you, not telling them Right. Here's what I've taught you. And here's what you should know. And here's how we think about this. Right. But like I had taught them that. Right. I wanted to see if they could apply it. Right. 
right? So before I was telling them my thoughts about it, I wanted to know what theirs were. Right. And most of the time it ended up, I didn't have to tell them what my thoughts were. Right. I grew up in a library. Like the public library was my friend and my salvation in a lot of ways. And I'm a huge reader. And, mm -hmm. and so, right. Like I lean into that space a lot and I have yet to read a book that didn't teach me something, mm -hmm. right? Like it might not have been a lesson I was meaning to learn. And that lesson might be like, I need boundaries on this kind of mm -hmm. literature because mm -hmm. this is not good for me, but I did learn something because I was willing to ask those questions. And I do worry that the way that we consume things in America, we don't ask the questions. And I think that like Twilight was seen as entertainment and I'm mm -hmm. using Twilight as an example. There are lots, you know, lots mm -hmm. right? But Twilight was seen as entertainment, but we didn't ask the questions of what could it teach us. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that as a culture, as like a kind of weird to have some boys staying in your room up all night, watching you sleep. My kids yeah. were like, that's weird. That's crazy. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. sleep if that were happening. I mean, legitimately, the whole premise of this, the 15-year-old girl right. dating a 136-year-old vampire yes. is just too much for me. Like, I just can't. <laughs> that's too much of an age gap. I don't care that he looks 17. I really right. don't. Um, he's lived way too much life. But I do, like, leaning into that space as a culture of just questioning which is ultimately what the word deconstruction is, mm -hmm, right? It is mm -hmm. a systemic questioning of previously held beliefs. Mm -hmm. I think that if we move into that space and if we allow ourselves to grieve in that space, the acceptance part of what could be mm -hmm. is beautiful. I mean, I, I agree. I think it's beautiful. I don't want to like pop that bubble because i don't think it's idealistic right? right but i think the fact that this generation is more accepting mm -hmm. of things older generations were intolerant of and they are intolerant of things that older generations were accepting of is part of why we're seeing this rise in banning books or banning yes. words or banning 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 also, can we just acknowledge that has never worked in human history? Right. Right. Like when you start banning things and burning books, one, historically, the next thing that comes are bodies. Yes. When, when we can't ban the information, we ban the people that are putting out the information. Mm -hmm. But it never stops the information. Right. Right. Then you have just like martyred an entire mm -hmm. belief system. I know when Florida released their, their list of banned books, I was like, oh, my new reading list. Right. I mean, like... <laughs> And some of those, I'm like, you can't, why would you, why, why right. would you even put this one on the list? Like, yes. it doesn't make sense. I mean, the other thing, when I was my first year at college, I took a media and film class, right? Mm -hmm. I was not going into that, but I, it looked interesting and it was interesting. <laughs> and we watched a lot of films during that class. And the teacher, the professor wanted us to apply critical thinking mm -hmm. to media and film because it was, you know, just going to be bigger and bigger. And I remember one of the films that one of the first films we watched was looking for Mr. Goodbar, which was like scandalous. I mean, mm -hmm. in the seventies and this was like the nineties, but still I was aware that that movie, I'd never seen that movie before and it was a bad movie. Right. And then, so we watched that before discussing anything. And then we watched the other one and I cannot for the life of me, remember the other film that we watched love story 
taken place during World War II. She's married, he's married, but he goes out in the countryside to kind of get away from combat, war, whatever. She welcomes him in to live in his house. They end up in this lovely, beautiful, in the French countryside affair, right? And so then we're discussing it and he's saying, which movie do you want to have an affair from? Because it's not looking for Mr. Goodbar. Right. Like you're like, that life is draining and leaves you a shell of a person. Whereas this seems delightful. Mm -hmm. And he was like, but this movie is bad. And this movie was a big hit. Like, what are we, you know? And I just remember being like, it was, it blew my mind. And I'm like, I think that's true in so many areas Mm -hmm. outside of film Mm -hmm. with books, right? Like when I saw the bluest eye on the band list, I was like, nobody reads that book and thinks I want to rape my daughter. Right. Like, I was just like, what? Like, yeah. I mean, you know, even in this 13 reasons why, was, uh-huh. yeah, was one yeah. that like, oh, it was on Netflix that kind of like got so much controversy mm-hmm. and it killed me. This is, this was the thing that killed me. It killed me because that came, that was happening at the same time that the Game of Thrones was happening, mm-hmm. which has gratuitous rape and incest and violence. Like, violence and sexual violence and sexual shame and misogyny. But that's for adults. But how many teenagers, you know, that watched it, right? Like, and, but the content was fantastical, right? Like Mm -hmm. it was glorifying and glamorizing these sexual traumas. Mm -hmm. And then you have 13 reasons why that in a very real way talks about the aftermath Mm -hmm. of sexual assault yes and what led up to that yes like and the culture mm-hmm. and the belief systems right and like so many people had issues with 13 reasons why and and I, there are some trigger warnings and it is very mm-hmm. close to real life and i have mm-hmm. whatever but one of my biggest issues like i don't have issues with sexual content in books or media mm-hmm. in general like if it's done well But one of my biggest issues is when you get a male author or a, like, in general, the the film industry, right? And rape is a plot point, Mm -hmm. but we don't talk about the destruction afterwards. And, like, everyone goes about in the Mm -hmm. next scene like it's normal Mm -hmm. and nothing has happened. Like, there's no, like, okay, well, I guess that was just how sex Mm -hmm. works. Or then, like, maybe she or he, whoever the rape victim was, they're not okay afterwards, but, like, that's not really the point. Yeah. Right. They, they're just like, we just move mm-hmm. on to the point that sometimes we even question like whether or not it's rape, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that was one of the things in game of Thrones. There was a scene in which like, she's literally saying, stop, no, stop. And the questions on the interwebs was like, well, was it really rape because they're in a relationship and like, she's come on to him before and like, she's been forceful and like, and I'm like, no. <laughs> Right. Like, I don't think that she wanted to have sex at her dead son's funeral. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that that was, she was saying no, Mm -hmm. that was a multiple thing. Like that's rape, but we, we couldn't reconcile that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think 
we don't have those conversations, right? right? Which when, when we don't have those conversations and we have a crisis, whatever that crisis is, and you know, we're talking about sexuality and media and things like this, affairs, rape, but like when we have a crisis that has been said, like, you know, this is what it looks like. This is what the affair in the French countryside looks like. This Mm -hmm. is what, you know, the plot point in, you know, dragons and war and what, like, whatever, move on. It looks like, and then we can't reconcile something like that, that happens in our body with us, mm-hmm. then we have to ask questions. And I think that that, that is the searching for Mr. Goodbar. That is right. the 13 reasons why that is that, right. We start to ask, like, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. And why do we keep selling these narratives that don't work? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know you've got to go, you're on a schedule. I'm on a schedule. So again, at the end of this episode, I hope that you recognize that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.